After so many years of protesting, have we reached a tipping point for the defeat of fossil fuels? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. has much too much of a role in this country. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Protest is one thing, but actually implementing significant policy change is quite another. Voices may increase in number and in volume over time regarding this or that objectionable policy, but unless and until there's a tipping point, the sought-after change isn't going to happen. What that specific tipping point is relates to, of course, the specific issue. For example, when Franklin Roosevelt said he agreed with A. Philip Randolph, head of the all-black Pullman Porters Union, about pay fairness, the president famously told him that while he agreed with the goal, he instructed Randolph to go out and make me do it. Pressure has to be strong enough to reach a tipping point a moment where the costs of continuing an objectionable policy just become too high to continue. A tipping point. The environmental movement has been added in earnest for some 50 years or so. Now, while there's nearly unanimous agreement that the effects of carbon emissions have put the entire planet in unprecedented jeopardy, resistance from the politically and financially powerful polluting industry have been intense, and they have a champion of course, in the Trump White House. Trump has gleefully done more to increase carbon emissions than probably even the industries themselves could have hoped for. They, with great vigor, overturned more than 100 environmental regulations. And while democracy was saved from a near-death experience, the work to save the Earth enters a new era. It's not the Green Deal so many of us have embraced, but incoming President Joe Biden at least talks the talk at least somewhat. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Richard Lackman, and he asks in a new article on Tom Dispatch, The Nation, ZNet, and Common Dreams, asking if we have reached where we might be able to say it is a tipping point for the defeat of fossil fuels. Have the protests actually worked? Has it become no longer economical to keep up the pollution? How hopeful should environmentalists be about the incoming Biden administration, which, after all, has refused to support the Green New Deal? How far have we come? How far do we still have to go to assure the actual policy changes we need to save the planet? Our guest is Richard Lachman. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's great to be with you. Richard Lockman is professor of sociology at the State University of New York in Albany and author of First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship, Elite Politics and the Decline of Great Power. Boy, that does paint a picture. Well, in a campaign video, the incoming president says he will be his will be a policy of drastic action. That's his words, drastic action. He talks of a clean energy revolution investing $1.7 trillion. He agrees with the goal of net zero emissions by 2050. His plan is not the Green New Deal, but he promises 10 million new jobs in the energy field. And seemingly recognizing the tipping point, the video recognizes those who have powered our industrial rise, they have earned our thanks. 
That's a quote from uh, Biden. As we make the transition away from that old scheme. He, of course, will re-enter the Paris Climate Accord and says he'll push China to stop financing dirty fuel. Biden says he wrote one of the first climate change bills in the Senate, and he urges us to, quote, seize the opportunity it presents, which will take incredible commitment, and we will meet this challenge. Environmentalists have recognized that Biden Green Deal is not the Green New Deal, but Say it is a damn good start. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Uh, Trump administration did all they could to keep us reliant on those dirty fuels. But the price per gallon of gas is exceptionally low now. But car manufacturers, I find this interesting, are trending heavily toward electric-powered vehicles. It doesn't seem that the economics of electric versus gasoline would be prompting that shift alone. What is motivating them to do that? I think there are two things. You know, one is that they they feel that regulation is coming. That you know, there are going to be government rules. I mean, California already, and some other states have joined in a compact with California, mandating a certain percentage of electric vehicles, and that percentage is going to rise very rapidly. So. Car manufacturers have to produce and sell electric vehicles if they want to sell the gas-powered ones. And then I think the other is that they recognize that the technology is improving very rapidly. And so the price advantage for gas is disappearing. And, you know, they want to be ready to meet that market. And, you know, they, you know, they have all these factories. You know, the, the value of these companies is invested in making automobiles and you know, so they have no alternative. You know, they have to sell whatever cars government mandates and, you know, whatever consumers are willing to buy. And so they, you know, realize it would be foolish for them, you know, not to invest at all in electric vehicles, especially since non-U.S. manufacturers yes. are. Yeah, they really are, especially in Europe. There's a lot of uh, electric vehicles. I haven't been there for quite a while for some strange reason, haven't done any traveling. <laughs> but in Europe, there are real green parties. Even though here candidates sign up as being of the green party, there, there really isn't a green party. Environmentalists instead have worked pragmatically through the Democratic Party. But you write, the strategy of pressuring leading Democrats hasn't worked particularly well for environmentalists in the past and doesn't seem to be working now. You say that Biden designated Congressman Cedric Richmond as his liaison with that very movement. How's that likely to work out? Tell us about uh, Congressman Cedric Richmond, please. I know nothing. Okay, he's an African-American congressman from New Orleans. And, you know, so, you know, there are various directions he could have gone in Congress. You know, on the one hand, he represents one of the most polluted districts in the country, and it's polluted because of oil refineries. So he could have served as, you know, overwhelmingly poor majority African-American constituents by trying to pass legislation to force oil companies to clean up their refineries, to not engage in the environmental racism where they place these refineries in poor non-white areas. But that's not the direction that he went in. Instead, he is one of the top three or four recipients of fossil fuel company campaign contributions of mm. any Democrat in Congress, and he's 
serve their interests. So Biden putting him in as the liaison is you know, not a good indication. Uh. And, you know, I mean, you know, more broadly, what's been effective is, you know, not begging Democratic or Republican mm. politicians to, you know, spend money on environmental cleanup or green energy. What's been effective is protesting and, you know, creating realities that politicians have to respond to. And, you know, as the main point that we make in that article is that the main point for pressure is on corporations, which after all, you know, this is a capitalist country and corporations much more than government make the investment decisions. So if we can make it unprofitable for finance companies, energy companies to invest in fossil fuels and instead invest in green energy, they're going to do that. You know, they just want to make money. And, you know, we need to change the calculus in every way that we can so that, you know, they see that it's no longer profitable to invest in fossil fuels. Yeah, boy, that's been a long time coming, I must say. But uh, you're right. They, they don't care what the, the widgets are that they make as long as they make money. You know, I, that, that's the whole thing. And, and you're right. But, boy, it's taken a long time. And in Europe, governments have more ability, it seems, to manipulate uh, the markets. They, they can be manipulated to achieve desired ends. And so far, uh, well, in what ways did the Trump regime try to force Wall Street to fund drilling for oil, for example, in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and push for other new fossil fuel initiatives? They pushed pretty hard for that. Yeah, I and mean, they, they did it in a number of ways. I mean, you know, they the main one was they tried to eliminate regulations that block drilling for fossil fuels. They opened up more federal land for leases to fossil fuel companies. And as financial companies decided that investing in various energy projects was too risky and they pulled back and also they were responding to pressure from environmentalists who were publicizing the fact that various banks, insurance companies, and mm. so on were investing in fossil fuels. Uh -huh. The Trump administration tried to get one of the main regulators of banks, the Office of the Controller of the Currency, to challenge these companies and say, if you don't offer funding for drilling in the Arctic, we're going to charge you with discrimination, uh -huh. discrimination against against oil companies. So, you know, so these laws that are intended to stop racial discrimination, gender discrimination, they were trying to say could be applied to discrimination against certain industries. And then the other argument they made is this is discrimination against the indigenous people of Alaska. And, you know, that's you know, almost as farcical as saying you're discriminating against an industry, you know, partly because, you know, this is the only occasion we've been able to identify where the Trump administration expressed any concern about racial discrimination. <laughs> and, you know, then also on top of that, most of the indigenous people in Alaska are against the drill. Of course. You know, I mean, oh my you know, you can always, you know, this is a big country, you know, every group has many, you know, people in it. So, you know, you can 
always, you know, you can find some indigenous people in favor of drilling. Sure. You know, because they feel it'll bring jobs or because they've already been offered a job by an oil company. So, you know, if you need to put a name on a case, you can find somebody who'll sign up for it. But, you know, it's a total misrepresentation to think that's what most indigenous people want. Wait, are you saying that the Trump administration misrepresented the truth? I can't believe that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, I guess there's a time for everything. <laughs> now, your article asks, and I'm going to ask you, why have the banks suddenly become so unwilling to invest in a longtime favorite sector of theirs, namely the fossil fuels? Well, what's the answer to the question you raise? Why have they become so unwilling? Well, because in recent years, they've, they've lost money and they're afraid they're going to lose more. Oh. You know, if you look at the, you know, it's a fracking industry that, you know, as it turns out, fracking is not profitable. You know, it's very expensive to engage in, you know, the wells continually need to be replaced. You can't get that much out of it. And then you have to move on to another spot. So, you know, the fracking companies were able to borrow tens of billions of dollars you know, it became marginally profitable once the price of oil got above $80 a barrel. You know, now it's down around 40 or $50. So these fracking companies are going bankrupt one after the other, and the banks that own the money are having to write off these loans. Mm. And so... They don't like doing that. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, if you ask any top corporate executive, you know, what business are you in? They'll say we're in the business of making a profit. You know, they're not in the business of drilling for oil, right. manufacturing automobiles. Right. You know, similarly with banks, you know, they're in the business of making a profit. And, you know, the one way for sure you don't make a profit is if the people you loan money to can't pay it back. And, you know, so they got hosed on fracking. So they're looking at these other sectors and saying, you know, the price of oil is low. How many of our other investments are you know, not going to be profitable. We're going to have to write off those loans. And then on top of that, they see, you know, this enormous shift in public opinion. That's, you know, people that don't want their planet destroyed, you know, they want serious steps taken to move away from fossil fuels. And so they recognize that demand is going to continue dropping. And, you know, meanwhile, these fossil fuel companies are coming and saying, we want to borrow these enormous sums so that we can try to explore for oil and drill for oil in these, mm. you know, really forbidding places. Yeah. You know, the oil that's been easy to find and pump out has already been, you know, discovered. Uh -huh. You know, the, the days when you, you know, stuck a little, you know, well in the ground in West Texas and, you know, the oil shot out and, you know, are over. You know, mm -hmm. now to find new oil, you're drilling, you know, deep in the ocean, you know, you're going to really cold places, you know, places where there's political conflict, so you have to hire your own army to protect the oil facilities, and that's really expensive, you know, and it only makes sense if demand is increasing and you can get a very high price per barrel. So, you know, these banks are making a rational decision. They're saying, you know, this is highly risky. We can't make money. We're not going to do it. Yeah. Well, it does seem we were ahead of our time. That does get tiring after a while, of being ahead of one's time. But yeah. <laughs> if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Richard Lachman, who, uh, who's written a piece in many different uh, publications 
asking if there is a tipping point for the defeat of fossil fuels. And I wondered, you know, gasoline is much more expensive in Europe. It was last time I checked, like, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine dollars a gallon here. It's, I think it's actually cheaper if you compare the dollars in the early 60s. I think it's cheaper now than it was back then. And that sort of, I think might, I would think, has the uh, effect of delaying the tipping point because people are thinking, oh, what's the problem? Gas is so cheap. It's so plentiful. But it's interesting that, you know, even without the really expensive gas, the public mood is changing. I I think that's fascinating because I guess people actually do care about saving the planet. Boy, it's been a while. But as you mentioned, oil used to be very expensive. I I mean, I I seem to remember it was over $100 a barrel. And back then, the Saudi regime was tremendously powerful. And that's, you know, going ahead in the uh, post-Trump years when uh, the Saudis and and Trump were very close. There's going to be some changes there. Uh, Tell us about the Saudi-Russian oil price war and how that has affect, affected production and demand as well as the bank's new reluctance to invest. I hadn't heard of this Saudi-Russian price war. Yeah, I mean, this has happened over the past year and, you know, that Saudi Arabia and Russia are, you know, along with the U.S., the biggest producers of oil in the world. And, you know, they, they want two things. You know, one, they obviously want to get as high a price as they can. But the other thing they want is they want to maintain their share of the global market. You know, I mean, as we've talked about before, there's, you know, excess capacity. And, you know, in part because of the, you know, fracking boom in the U.S. that brought so much oil onto the market that there was too much oil. And so, you know, both, you know, Russia and Saudi Arabia wanted to maintain their share of the market. You know, they're both part of the OPEC cartel, which, you know, tells the members, this is how much oil you can produce each year. And they, you know, will collectively cut production to try to maintain price. And, you know, Russia was unwilling to keep to the agreement. They were pumping and selling more oil. And so the Saudis Uh put pressure on them decided they were going to dump oil on the market and the price crashed. They, you know, each were willing to offer oil for less and less to capture more Mm -hmm. of the market. And, you know, that along with fracking, you know, brought the price way down. And now with the COVID crisis, people are driving less, they're not flying, factories aren't operating. And so there's less demand for oil. So, you know, all of that together is putting enormous downward pressure on the price of oil. Which I think is a good thing. And, you know, we've had sustainable energy, wind and solar for a long, long time, many decades. But up till recently, they just have not been economically competitive. Has that really changed now? I mean, with the price of oil so low? Tell tell us about, about that. Well, there have been real technological innovation. So that, you know, And it's been, you know, very rapid and in recent years so that, you know, the cost of producing, you know, solar wind power now is, you know, around 20 percent of what it was five years ago. You know, there have been these, you know, real improvements in the technology. And then on top of that, 
the cost of batteries is dropping. You know, what, you know, one of the points that fossil fuel people, you know, make to try to argue against mm-hmm. wind and solar is they say the wind doesn't always blow. You know, the sun isn't right. always shining. You know, what are people going to do then? And, you know, so their answer is, well, you know, we need to have power plants where we can burn oil yeah. and natural gas, you know, to make up for these shortfalls. Well, you know, the other way to make up for it is you store energy in batteries. And until recently, you know, battery storage was really expensive. Well, that too is dropping very rapidly in cost. And, you know, so taken together, you know, if you're building a new source of power, the cheapest now are wind and solar. It's cheaper than oil cheaper than coal and cheaper than natural gas. Boy, that is music to my ears, I have to say. And, you know, obviously consumer demand almost always leads market, but some technologies manage to survive the challenge from superior substitutes. And people who call themselves conservatives have long criticized those who favor federal investments in solar, wind, and other renewable, non-polluting energy sources as the government-picking winners and avoiding the market forces that their competitors have to face. But there's a big exception to that rule, nuclear power. If the nuclear industry had to rely on the market to buy insurance for their plants, uh, protecting them from liability if an accident occurs, they could never be in business. Uh, bone to pick that I've had for a long time is the Price-Anderson Act from the 1950s. They picked nuclear to be a winner, and this subsidizes them. It protects them from uh, insurance liability. Now, opposition to nuclear has been overpowered by many forces. There haven't been any nuclear plants built in quite a few years. And nuclear, of course, is very capital-intensive. Some People who call themselves environmentalists say, well, nuclear is green. It doesn't pollute that much. But there's a lot of carbon that's produced uh, in, in producing the fuel, etc. What about nuclear? Is that Has a tipping point arrived for them as well? What are your thoughts on that, Richard? Well, I mean, the tipping point arrived 40 years ago when, you know, after the <laughs> Three Mile Island and yeah, Chernobyl true. accidents and, you know, there hasn't been a nuclear power plant built in this country since the 1980s. So, you know, the industry is essentially dead. I mean, the government has kept it alive in various ways. You know, one, if you mentioned the Price-Anderson Act, which means, you know, if there were an accident, you know, there'd be a severe limit on what damages anybody could collect so they don't need insurance. You know, another is that they've, chain the regulation safety regulations are very weak you know these plants when they were built were intended to last 30 or 40 years and then they were supposed to shut down well you know the government has weakened the regulations so you now have plants you know that are 60 years old and they're being renewed for another 20 years and of course you know the older they get you know the more likely there is to be an accident then the final subsidy is you know, of course, when the after the fuel is given off energy, you know, it needs to be taken away. It's radioactive, but it's no longer, you know, providing energy. And that's very expensive. Well, the, you know, the government is picking up 100% of the cost. You know, for decades, the government has been 
building nuclear storage facilities. I mean, they haven't been able to do it because there, in fact, is no place safe way to store it. So, you know, they've been, you know, working on putting one in Nevada. They spent billions of dollars planning on construction. Mm. Then they realized that the water table was very close to it. And so they built it. Most of the water for Nevada would then become radioactive. So, you know, it's, it's come to a stop, but, you know, this is one cost that nuclear power plants don't have to bear. You know, the government's going to pick up the cost of, you know, dealing with the spent fuel and eventually taking apart the plants and, you know, dealing yes. with these radioactive facilities. Yeah, it, it, the idea eventually it comes around that, uh, you know, throwing good money after bad, you might want to stop that after a while. It's just sort of a law of capitalism, I would think. And the fossil fuel industry, have they also been uh, the uh, beneficiary of, of socialized economy, of socialism, in other words, relying on government subsidies and handouts, fossil fuel industry as well? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, a lot of their drilling takes place on government-owned land, which they're able to lease for really cheap prices. You know, like the nuclear industry, they don't have to pay the cost of cleanup. You know, there are all these abandoned fracking wells that, you know, when these companies go bankrupt, you know, they just leave. They didn't have to set aside any money for cleaning those up. You know, they're, you know, allowed to lay pipelines over not just public but private land and pay no- nothing for that privilege mm. and in various states the you know regulatory agencies that just you know govern utilities demand that these utilities buy energy from oil gas and coal powered plants oh, so right. you know even though it's now cheaper to get it from wind and Solar in various states, you know, they say, well, too bad. You know, these plants exist and you have to keep buying from them. And that's one of the ways the Trump administration tried to intervene to create federal rules that would impose that. But, you know, that they weren't able to accomplish Mm. because, you know, this is an area that traditionally states have control over. And it used to be conservatives would uh, favor some degree of states' rights. But tell us about the OCC. I had not heard of that. How has Trump used the OCC to pressure for more extraction? And and what kind of pushback pressure has hobbled such efforts? Well, I mean, that's the Office of the Control of the Currency. And, you know, that is the agencies that we were talking about before with the banks, you know, not wanting to offer loans for drilling in the Arctic Wildlife Refuge and the Trump administration pressured the OCC to say they were going to file discrimination cases against financial companies if they didn't finance that. Yeah, so there, you know, all these avenues that can be used, you know, depending to limit fossil fuels or to favor fossil fuels. Mm. Clearly, Trump trying to say, well, you know, once that got attention at you know, it was so outrageous that, you know, the OCC didn't move ahead. And in any case, in another month, Biden will be in office and, you know, these sorts of efforts will come to an end. But there's this, you know, intense effort to try to, you know, put these bit leases out for bid and have oil companies sign them 
before Trump leaves office, because then it'll be, you know, it's not impossible for Biden to undo it, but it'll be harder for Biden to undo it. Well, he's got a lot on his plate, my goodness. And I find it interesting that most people who would consider themselves conservative uh, like the idea of the market working and think that uh, fossil fuels have, have worked so well because it's only been regulated by the market. People, I think, in general don't realize how powerful the federal government has been in subsidizing these polluting industries. It's People are just starting to wake up to that now, I think. And of course, you know, this concentration and centralization of power and wealth, that's been going on for a long time. As with many formerly competitive aspects of the American economy, there's been great consolidation in the energy industry. Has the current COVID crisis accelerated this pattern? If so, how? Well, the COVID crisis plus the overproduction of oil and natural gas and the Russian-Saudi price wars. You know, together, all of these have made, you know, much of the fracking and even oil and gas drilling unprofitable. And so, you know, the the smaller companies, the poorly capitalized companies, are bankrupt or on the verge of bankruptcy. And what happens then is that the big established oil companies like Exxon Mobil, you know then see an opportunity to buy up the assets of these other companies at a cheap price. And, you know, uh-huh. that's been going on. So, uh-huh. you know, they'll, you know, they'll buy it, you know, now, you know, with some of these deals that the price of that they're paying for, you know, oil that's already been discovered is, you know, ready to be drilled is $5 a barrel, you know, so yeah. for a big company, you know, this is great, you know, do you, do you want to drill in Alaska where it's going to cost a hundred dollars to yeah. extract it, or do you want to buy some, you know, bankrupt uh, company where you get it for five dollars a barrel? It's a very easy decision. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, but this, this is nothing new. You know, the energy industry has you know a combination of these big companies and the smaller ones, and you know the smaller one. You know, it's a cyclical industry. The prices go up and down. So when they go down, these Small ones go bankrupt. Even when prices are good, the small ones don't have access to capital. And so, you know, they often sell out to the big companies that then, you know, take what they discovered and drill them. You know, back in the 60s, there was a sitcom, The Beverly Hillbillies. That was basically the premise of the show. It's, oh, that's right. You know, this hillbilly discovers oil and, you know, he doesn't know what to do with it. So he, you know, sells it to a big oil company. <laughs> ah, the American dream. Dripping yeah. with dirty oil and coal dust, I must say. And we, we haven't talked about coal, but that's also a fossil fuel. And I thought it was interesting how uh, incoming President Biden was talking about, uh, you know, appreciating the work that these people have done. I would think, well, again, he has so much on his plate, but creating jobs for the, the people in the coal industry uh, could help quite a bit. I mean, Heck, the tipping point against coal, that came a long time ago. And yet Trump, of course, still pushed it. But what what could other, I mean, I don't know how much sun there is there or wind or whatever, but uh, I mean, maybe you have some insight into what kind of energy-related jobs could replace the coal mining jobs. Got any ideas? Well, I mean, in West Virginia, they're hills, so they have wind. And, you know, the Dakotas where the fracking boom has been concentrated, 
you know, there's lots of open space and sun. There can uh-huh. be solar farms and, you know, and the, you know, the people who do this sort of work, you know, have skills that can pretty easily, you know, be retrained so that they can work in installing, you know, solar panels, building windmills. And, you know, I think what, you know, I mean, Trump's learned from the errors of his Democratic predecessors. I mean, we remember when, you know, Hillary Clinton was running for president four years ago, among the various really stupid things that she said, you know, one of them was, you know, we're going to, you know, get rid of a lot of coal jobs. So, you know, they, oh, right. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, you know, I can't read her mind. I don't know what she intended, but, you know, certainly for coal miners, Did not you know, they well. heard it as, you know, we don't you know, care. We don't care about right. you. Yeah. Right. And, right. You know, so, you know, so Biden, <laughs> you know, is very, you yes. know, cleverly saying, you know, we respect what you've done. You yes. know, we understand that our prosperity is in large part due to your hard work. So, uh-huh. you know, we're going to take care of you and, you know, we're going to be sure that these new jobs go to you first. And that's, you know, you know, it's not something he invented, you know, the mm. People who advocate the Green New Deal, you know, make that point again and again True. and again. Yes. This is a jobs program. You yes. know, this is a country where, you know, they're not good manual jobs. And, right. you know, this conversion is going to create millions of these jobs. And so, you know, if you're not a college educated, if you work with your hands, you know, you're going to be the beneficiary. You're the ones who should be advocating for the Green New Deal. Uh-huh. And, it's it's and, you know in some places they've made that they've made that connection. I mean here in New York, you know they're you know making plans to build giant you know windmill farms off the coast, and you know the it's of course a European company that's going to do it. Yep. But you know Governor Cuomo made sure that they agreed to pay union wages and hire union construction workers. So suddenly, at least in New York, you know blue collar, you know, manual workers are big advocates for wind power because they see they're going to get these good jobs. Boy, a lot of things contribute to a tipping point. It's it's uh, some really good stuff, I must say. I always like to have good news. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, our show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're speaking with uh, Professor of Sociology Richard Lackman. And he's written an article called A Tipping Point for the Defeat of Fossil Fuels. So a lot of good news. And one of the more expensive, more really incredibly dirty ways to extract oil was the oil shale extraction, oil sands in Western Canada. A lot of the indigenous nations up there uh, pushed back really hard. How how has that affected the investment climate for uh, the construction and transportation infrastructure that was required for those massive projects. What does the tipping point look like in that situation? You know, when you extract that, then you have to be able to move the oil elsewhere. That's yes. why these pipelines are, are so important. And, you know, indigenous people and environmentalists are, you know, continually, you know, trying to block, you know, the building of a pipeline from the oil sands in Alberta, you know, to the, Pacific Coast. And, you know, so far they've held it up. And of course, on, you know, on top of that, the drop in the price of oil makes that uneconomical. That's one of the most expensive ways to extract oil. It's also the, yes. by far the most energy intensive way. So, 
you know, about a third of, you know, the energy in the oil sands is used up immediately <laughs> just extracting the oil from the sand. And, you know, so it's not economical. They're past the tipping point. But, you know, the, the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, who, you know, you know, the image he presents, you know, he's the yeah. guy where half his cabinet was women. And then when I said, why is it half women? He said, well, because it's, you know, 2015, you know, he has great hair, you know, he, you know, looks like, you know, sort of, you know, Obama-esque, you know, liberal hero, but he does you know, on this, he's been, he, he looks that way, he sounds that way, but, yeah. you know, in policy, he's terrible. You know, he, the, he wants the Canadian government to spend billions of dollars, you know, to buy up the bankrupt, you know, oil pipeline company and build the pipeline itself to make it possible to extract these oil sands. So, you know, he's working as hard as he can to make this, you know, horrible form of energy viable. That is surprising, but there's been a few uh, bits of uncomfortable reality about uh, Justin Trudeau, I I must say. And, you know, Democrats... The, re- the Republicans, we know, have kowtowed to every Trump whim. And maybe someday we'll find out why. But what about Democrats in Congress? Are they, I mean, they're skittish as well. They don't like to push too hard. They don't like to stick their necks out like any politician. Are they active or not so much in terms of forcing a turn away from fossil fuels? You know, they're divided. You know, it's, it's a big party and it ranges from, you know, on the one side, people like Cedric Richmond or Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, who, you know, are are strong advocates for fossil fuels. And, you know, on the other side, you know, there are many Democrats in Congress, you know, perhaps a majority who, you know, are in favor of a switch to green energy and would like to have the government make, you know, the massive investments that are needed you know, to, so this transition can take place really quickly. So, you know, you know, I don't want people to, you know, come away from this discussion thinking elections don't matter. I shouldn't vote. You know, they do matter. You know, and if oh, yeah. Democrats had a big, bigger majority in Congress, you know, Green New Deal measures would pass and there'd be yes. much more funding. But it's not enough. You know, just like in in Canada, you know, voting for Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Democrats isn't enough. You know, they're better than the Conservatives, but right. you know, that's not the, that's not the whole answer. You know, we, you well, know, this is such a crisis. We need to pursue, you know, every strategy at once. I wish I knew the source of this quote that I so often use: "Politics and protest, both necessary. Neither is sufficient." You got the protests have worked. There's no question what you're saying, Richard. The protests have worked, and you know, as as sort of a veteran of of left political movements for many years, I can recognize that the left is often kind of fractured. That one hand doesn't know what the other's doing. In spite of this tradition, your article cites four mutually reinforcing strategies that the environmental movement has employed that are working quite well. I want to go through the four, but before I ask that, I did want to ask about the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines. I suspect most people have lost track of those, which had been in the news all the time a while ago. What can you tell us about them? It seems like 
uh, some sort of strategy has worked with regard to Keystone XL in Dakota. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, this is the first of the four strategies. Okay. But if we can stop pipelines, then you know, all sorts of fossil fuel extraction is no longer possible. You know, you can't transport significant amounts of oil on trains or in trucks that, you know, has to go in pipelines. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's just not financially viable. And so, you know, these two pipelines have been, at least for now, stopped. And, you know, it's partly, you know, pe- you know protesters, you know, above all indigenous protesters sat in, they sat on the sites of where these pipelines were supposed to be laid mm-hmm. and stopped the work. And, you know, on top of that, of course, you know, the protests generated a lot of publicity. You know, the rest of us who weren't aware of these pipelines suddenly became aware of them. And, Uh you know, so we, you know, demanded that our legislators take action. You know, the role of banks in financing that was given attention. And, you know, the banks don't like bad publicity. So they started... (laughs) pulling back and, you know, so together, you know, that's stopped these pipelines, at least for now. And now with Biden coming in, you know, they're, you know, the government is going to switch sides. You know, so the government won't be trying to push it ahead. The government will be, you know, another roadblock to their construction. Yeah, that sounds beautiful as well. Now, the second of the four strategies has to do with regulators who had mainly gotten used to acting as rubber stamps for a long time. I mean, certainly the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was mostly the Nuclear Promotion Commission. What about, what about the that second strategy with regard to regulators? Well, I mean, you know, in the U.S., you know, law, environmental, like other laws, you know, usually written very vaguely. And then an agency is set up to implement these laws. And you know, so you have these regulators and, you know, for the most part, they're dealing with complex technical questions. You know, what's the chance that an oil pipeline can rupture? And if it does, what damage will it do? You know, what concentration of a chemical in water or air is dangerous? And, you know, how much of that should companies have to clean up? And, you know, so the regulators are considering these issues. And, you know, the one thing we can be sure is that the companies that are going to be regulated and have to spend a lot of money cleaning up pollution or being blocked from building pipelines are going to be at those hearings. And they're going to show up at these hearings with engineers, lawyers, scientists, who, you know, are going to produce data from bogus studies that these companies have financed to show that the pipeline's absolutely safe. You know, the, pollutant even at a high level doesn't make anybody sick and you know you know it's not that the regulators are going to 100% agree with what the companies say but if they're getting pressure just from one side they're going to be pushed to some degree sure. in that direction and so you know what you know the protests do is they place counter pressure on these regulators uh-huh. you know it's a way of saying we're watching you. Uh-huh. We know what you're doing. I mean, this is basically what, you know, Ralph Nader did through his entire uh, career. True. You know, he, you know, it was, you know, he said, you know, there are these regulators. Nobody knows what they're doing. And I'm going to 
raise money to hire my own experts who are going to come in and push from the other side. And I'm going to have, you know, mailing lists of people and, you know, alert them saying this decision is about to be made, you know, write the regulatory agency, write your member of Congress, and it put pressure on the other side. So, you know, basically, you know, what's happening now is following this Nader strategy of, you know, bringing attention to what the regulators are doing and mounting counter pressure. It's always great when we actually learn from history. Uh, it's it's so nice. The third of the four strategies is lawsuits. They are very expensive. The other side, the, the uh, fossil fuel industry generally has far deeper pockets, and that can, uh, you know, uh, be a disincentive for, for lawsuits on the environmental side. In what ways has this alternative choke point gotten around unresponsive politicians? Well, it, it's because... You know, there are very specific laws of the steps that government needs to follow if they want to approve a pipeline or implement regulations. And the Trump administration, you know, for the most part, hired incompetence and they were sloppy. So it's, you know, quite easy to challenge their decisions through lawsuits. And in a minimum, you know, this delays things. You know, the pipeline can't go ahead while the suit is being considered. And, you know, that runs down the clock. And, you know, now Trump is leaving office. And, you know, talk about, you know, learning from history. Another way they've learned is that, you know, environmental and other leftist lawyers are taking a tactic from the right of venue shopping. You know, I mean, we know that. You know, they're Democratic appointed judges, they're Republican appointed judges, and the way they're going to rule on these sorts of suits is very different. So during the Obama years, right wing lawyers would, you know, they don't get to pick an individual judge. They have to file in right. a district. But, you know, there are districts where there are more Republican judges, more uh. Democrat. you know, so there's no guarantee what judge you're going to get. But, you know, if there's one district where there are eight Republicans and two Democrats, the odds are pretty good if you're a right wing lawyer. You know, and so these environmental lawyers, you know, find districts where most of the judges are Democrats and they file. And, you know, often these judges will stop construction. Uh, that's that's very nice. And the fourth component we've talked about a bit of the strategy is targeting the money pipeline. How how well has that worked? And how has it worked? Well, I mean, it's, well, I mean, you know, it's started working in recent years and, you know, the the banks can figure out on their own whether making the loan is profitable or not. But, you know, what protesters can add on top of that is bad publicity that, you know, if a bank is making a loan for an environmentally dangerous project, you know, yeah, they probably can make some money on it, but if they get bad publicity, other people won't want to do business with that bank. They won't deposit their money there. They won't go to that bank for mortgages. And that's something these banks have to weigh. And then, you know, on top of that, banks continually are going to the government to ask for all sorts of favors. And, you know, if they're seen as, you know, these evil entities that are, giving out loans for projects that are going to destroy the planet, 
their political capital is going to be less and they're going to have a harder time getting what they want from government on other things. So, you know, all of that taken together uh-huh. has led more and more banks to decide it's not worth it. You know, we can't make that much money on it. Forget it. You know, we'll loan our money some other place where we won't get bad publicity and we won't have these loans at such risk. Public protest does work after a long time. It has to be real pressure. Uh, and, you know, once it affects mm-hmm. the pocketbook, that makes a big difference in creating a tipping point. We're talking about reaching tipping points with uh, our guest today, Richard Lockman, professor of sociology at State University of New York in Albany and author of First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship, Elite Politics and the Decline of Great Powers. It sounds pretty hopeful. Um, you write that decisions back in July relative to the two North Dakota pipelines were especially significant uh, with regard to, to legal decisions. They were even referred to by the North Dakota government as a possible governor, as a possible tipping point. Tell us about those, please. Why that might be a tipping point for the North Dakota governor. That's significant. You know, in recent years, North Dakota, which was a you know state whose population was declining, was totally dependent on agriculture, which for the most part is a low margin industry, you know, suddenly was a place where, you know, there was, they discovered there was oil under the soil that could be taken out with fracking. And so the economy in North Dakota and to a lesser degree, South Dakota, boom, you know, they were, farmers got all this money leasing their land for fracking, you know, all these oil workers showed up there and, you know, were earning big money and, you know, local people were making, you know, large profits by leasing them homes and apartments, you know, serving them food, you know, doing all these things. And, but, you know, now as we've talked about, you know, fracking is in decline. And, you know, so, you know, the Republican governor and, you know, Republican politicians in the Dakotas are eager to try to keep this going. And, you know, they see that there are these protests that, you know, in one, you know, one way after another, undermining the viability of the fracking industry. And, you know, so the governor of North Dakota recognizes that this can't continue, you know, that we're at a point where, you know, fracking is going to stop. This industry is going to disappear. And, you know, people in North Dakota are going to have to figure out, you know, what they can do, what there is to replace that. And, Yes. You know, so if there's a viable, you know, green energy policy, you know, that's a real alternative. If it makes money, it makes money. <laughs> that's the bottom line. And if it, provi- if it provides jobs, it yeah. provides jobs. And, uh, of course, Joe Biden, when he was running for president, really very pointedly walked away from the Green New Deal. I, I guess that phrase scared people. I don't know. Isn't and, and I'm looking at some of the appointees uh, that, that Biden is making, Gina McCarthy, uh, to coordinate the White House climate effort. And I see that uh, Michael Regan, North Carolina's top environmental regulator, will be head of the EPA. And apparently that's a nod to the progressive wing of the party. And um, so many other appointees. I'm wondering if, you know, maybe it's not the Green New Deal, but is it? I mean, creating new jobs and sustainable energy, it's kind of similar to the Green New Deal, is it not? I mean, Al Gore 
who said the U.S. is back on task. He says it's a new era of climate accountability that is upon us. Your thoughts on Biden's direction? Well, I mean, I think he's, you know, definitely is a shift from Trump that he, you know, he recognizes there is global warming. He recognizes that this is the fundamental issue. And, you know, I think, you know, he, he wants to build a legacy. He doesn't just want to be, you know, a name on the list of presidents. And, you know, this is something that where he can make a substantial difference, you know, even if the Democrats don't control the Senate, you know, through regulation, through government purchases, you know, he in fact can get a great deal done. And, you know, I think he and another, a number of other Democrats recognize that, you know, the promise of jobs in this area is something that, you know, can also have a huge political payoff. So, you know, there are lots of reasons for him to go in this direction. Sure. I mean, the New Deal under Franklin Roosevelt, that was pretty successful. And he has just a bit of a legacy, probably, opinion varies, but I would think certainly one of the best presidents ever. And so doing these things that can leave a legacy they're all sensitive to that, and and who knows how long he's going to be in there. And I will say, over the last few decades, since the Vietnam War, pe- people on the left have felt kind of dispirited, as if pressure from below is, is just not effective at changing policy. They feel like, we don't have any power. There's nothing we can do. It sounds like, despite this fairly longstanding skepticism on the left, uh, pressure from below is working. Is that is that correct? I mean, it sounds very uh, optimistic, and is is that real history there? Yes, it is, and you know, it's working in this area. I mean, I don't, you know, want to no, say that policy, there's no. effective pressure, you know, in in foreign policy, well, foreign policy to some degree, but you know, in tax policy, not. You know, you know, as we're speaking, that you know, Congress is about to approve a you know, new COVID relief plan. And, you know, it's a pretty stingy yeah, one. But yeah, one well. thing that's not stingy is that they're including in that $120 billion, you know, of new breaks for corporations, you know, tax breaks. So, you know, on tax policy, mm. you know, things are disaster. But, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the rich and corporations are paying less and less. You know, every bill to cut their taxes, you know, sales through with, you know, Republican support, and there are usually a few Democrats right. who sign on as well. So, you know, that's, as of now, one area where protest isn't effective. But, it's, you know, I think in other areas, we can learn from our success in energy and the environment and, you know, figure out, you know, the strategy won't be exactly the same. Right. You know, obviously, there are pipelines that we can sit in on to stop tax breaks for the rich. But, you know, they're you know, we can develop other strategies. I I just, I, I've, I've long favored smaller decentralized sources of sustainable energy. It's I'm getting the sense that they may actually have a bright future. What do you think? Yes, I believe they, they are. Yeah, because, you know, so, you know, we can put solar panels on our roofs. Yeah. You know, they, you know, there are various, you know, ta- yeah, towns where, you know, the town on their own is, you know, building, you know, solar farms 
putting solar panels on municipal buildings and generating enough energy, not just for, you know, to provide the city's energy needs, but to, you know, have extra for, you know, residences in the town. So, you know, that's what's great about solar and wind that can be done on a local basis. It certainly can be. Well, this has been very much fun talking with you. And uh, let's continue the pressure. People, people do matter. And, uh, what, you know, maybe the tipping point for many things comes from that so many big, powerful interests don't like bad publicity. So <laughs> it, it can work. It yeah. can work. Thank you so much, Richard Lackman. Good to talk to you again. It's been a long time. Thank you. Yes, yeah, it was great. Thanks, Frank.